the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Today, we welcome Ben Hakama. Ben founded Illuminate Wealth Management on January 1st, 2020. Prior to Illuminate, Ben spent over a decade at another independent financial firm in the Chicago area. Ben is a CFP, a certified financial planner, and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Financial Planning Magazine, among others. When not running Illuminate and serving his clients, Ben spends time with his wife and two kids, cooking new recipes, as well as golfing and playing volleyball. Ben, welcome to the show. Paul, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. I, I know we had a little bit of banter and a little bit of a rough start uh, getting this going on my part. Uh, we had a couple of takes on the intro. Um, I like to well, leave see, it here, here Ben. I was worried our power was going to be out. Uh, it's been out this week, so I'm glad we could oh, make this happen. That's right. You're in Chicago, right? So that's the weather's right. been... It's been crazy, huh? It's been crazy. Uh, welcome welcome to uh, weather in Chicago. Every day is something new. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. And I also noted that you're a CFP, and we've had other CFPs on the, on the show before, certified financial planners. I want to make sure, and I, I want to also double down on this, and I've said this to the audience before, that CFP designation takes an awful lot of work to get done. So, Ben, congrats on that. I know people that have done it, and they tell me it's 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 pure he double hockey sticks right <laughs> yes yeah, for sure yes i i was a um i was an economics major in college and joined the firm that, that you mentioned and uh, they said oh you need to get your cfp and i didn't know what i was getting into uh, at the time and had to do a bunch of self-study courses and i was like oh i got this it's easy and and then i got into it and it was a lot harder than i thought but uh thanks and i'm you know, it's something I'm glad I'm done with that. <laughs> no, that's very cool. That's very cool. Well, we'll just jump right in. So, Ben, how, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So, as I just mentioned, um, I went to college and, and I was actually pre-med uh, originally and said, hey, I want to I want to be a doctor and then went to the OR with my dad. He was a surgeon and said, oh, I'm out. Don't want to do that at all. This is an awful <laughs> experience. Um, and uh, he said, well, if I wasn't in medicine, I'd want to be in finance. Why don't you go meet with my financial uh, advisor? And uh, that turned into a job and an internship and then a job and work there. And and um, I was lucky enough to be mentored by a lot of really great people to kind of teach how to treat clients and how to work with clients. Most people think of wealth management, financial advisors, whatever else, as purely investment managers. I mean, that's kind of how the industry's changed over time is it used to be just stockbrokers and then it was by mutual funds. And now uh, there's a lot more that goes into it. And so that CFP, Certified Financial Planner, one fifth of that, maybe one sixth is investments. The rest are things like taxes, insurance, estate planning, all the other areas that are you know, a part of finance that, you know, obviously you talk about and, and have people on about. So um, just working through all that learning as we go through, um, I now work with about 55 client families. And uh, like you said, we launched right before COVID, January 2020. And uh, I, I thought it was going to be a solo firm originally, and then pretty quickly realized how much I missed having an awesome team 
and uh, started hiring some people. And so now we, we have clients in 14 states. And because we grew up during COVID, um, we've I have clients in Chicago that I've never met in person because they've been on Zoom forever and they work from home and they don't want to leave their home to come see me. And I've got no problem with that. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. You know, it's so funny. Uh, we talk about that on the show. Uh, we reiterate, you know, how important it is to have that team. And and you just kind of summed it up, you know, the financial advisor, the tax specialist, an attorney, right? Having those people around you and surrounding yourself with those people that can help you, you know, not only with your financial future, but you really need that team in place for everything, right? Like when it comes to, you know, real estate or estate planning, all those different, all those different things. So I'm assuming your firm does is a full one-stop shop. You supply all those different services for your clients. So we advise on all those, all those pieces. Um, I am not a CPA, but we partner with a few um, tax preparers. And so we, um, as a part of our service, we're doing the taxes, but uh, we're actually outsourcing it and holding in those experts in the different areas. Same with estate planning, where I work with other attorneys, I tell them, here's what I think they need. We talk about it. Client doesn't need to be involved until it's time to actually, you know, create the legal document and those pieces. So we like to think of ourselves as kind of the middle of, of all areas of your financial life. And so we can see the problems that you don't know that you have uh, and then go to the right expert. So if you're buying real estate, I've got mortgage brokers that I call and say, hey, this is who you're going to have. And here's some realtors that we recommend in the area. And here's, you know, if you need insurance, I have five different people, whether it's auto and homeowners, whether it's life and disability insurance, all those different pieces, uh, Medicare, supplemental insurance, they even have a specialist in. Oh, that's great. I didn't realize that. So, so it is really... You know, uh, you know, it really is one stop shop at the end of the day with you kind of orchestrating what you need with the with the client to make sure you get whatever they need satisfied. Right. So that Absolutely. makes that's cool. And, and and the other thing you touched upon was the growth and and the growth during covid. And maybe this is kind of an offshoot question, but how do you think covid has changed the financial services industry? In terms of you mentioned that you have clients in different states, it used to be a very handshake in person, um, so, you know, uh, what's the high touch business? I think that's Absolutely. what I would refer to it as. And you used to kind of look at kind of the big, big brokers like the online folks is like low touch and, right. uh, you know, that you would just do it. But with COVID now, there's this interesting concept of being able to be high touch leveraging the technology. Can you talk about that a little bit, how it's changed your industry? Absolutely. I, I think I think COVID and the, the ramifications of that long-term, um, I think are still understated in the industry itself. I think that there are a lot of older firms. And when I say older, any firm that was built 20 years ago or more, and there's a lot of those, whether they're the big houses you, you, know, you see commercials on TV on, or they're independent firms. Um, if they were If they were built 20 years ago or more, they're not prepared for where this is going. And when I say that is they're all about who do you know in my current network that I'm at my country club and that's, you know, who I'm getting as a client. And the only way they know how to serve clients is sitting across the table and doing something. There's a whole group of younger advisors, typically they're younger, that are building businesses that are serving a very specific niche or niche, uh, depending where you're on the country. And um, they are... <laughs> 
they are going so deep into a specialty, into the type of people that they work with, that now you can be very location independent and work with somebody wherever they are. So I think they're both just leveraging technology, the way that high touch comes across. So we have a, for instance, we have a client calendar that every single month we're doing things for clients. We're reaching out proactively, talking about different things, but no clients coming in every month to talk to me. I have an office location. Most people we meet on Zoom, even if they can easily drive here, because that's just the way that we have our high touches on an ongoing basis and being proactive, not we need to grab coffee together. And and there's still a need for that. I still fly around the country a few times, go meet clients in, in the other states. Um, nice reason to get out of the Midwest, go to Florida in January, you know, things like that. But um, it's most of the business is done remotely and the old school firms aren't prepared for that. Now, thank you for that. I, I didn't realize you, you mentioned niche market, which I guess you find that advisors can now specialize in a particular, you know, supporting veterinarians versus supporting media and entertainment versus supporting doctors. Is is that kind of what you mean by developing that niche? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I have client, I, I have people in my peer group. I mean, I've been in peer group for 10 years of other financial planners and, um, and they're all in the Midwest. We meet every other month, one of them in there. I mean, he is hundred percent doctors he gets 30 prospective doctors call him a month from anywhere in the country, even though he's in Kentucky. And that's because he has now built his business that he knows hospital systems. He knows how to negotiate contracts. He knows how to get very specialized in what a doctor actually needs. On the flip side, I can do a great job for a doctor, but arguably I can't do as well as he can. If you're in a hospital system that he knows really well, I can't compete with that. And that's fine. I know other people that are, they work with, um, you know, only Amazon web service people, and they know everything about what AWS can provide from a benefits package. And they know inside and out, and they know what the different tiers are on what your um, salary range is and things like that. We don't specialize to that degree um, because I've just, uh, candidly, I just would get bored if all I did was work with the same type of person every day. But where we kind of specialized is how deep I think on a relationship relationship side we go with our clients. On the first question I ask is all the soft ones. On if you had a billion dollars today, what has your life changed? What do we do differently? How can we impact the world positively on whatever you care about? And how can we make that happen? That's how we focus with our clients. And so not everyone wants to work with us. But the ones that are really interested in getting deep like that and really having a more fulfilling life with their finances, that's who we attract. That's a great question to ask a client. I, I, that, that's interesting um, because I, it really does kind of flush out, you know, you, you have it all now, right? And Well, you exactly. hope at a billion, you have I it would, all. I, if they don't, right. we're all in trouble. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So uh, that's a great question. And I want to jump into, and this is, the topic that we're really covering today that we really want to drive into at least at least for a little bit is the fire movement and this is a topic that i came across my desk or came across my my purview um a couple of years ago maybe and and it was it was a great topic um and i learned a lot about it and i tried to do a podcast to talk about it but i didn't have that expertise and when i found out that you have 
some decent knowledge in this space. I said, wow, this is great. Like, this is a great topic that we could dig into, among other things. But I really want to dig into this for a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about what the FIRE movement is for our listeners? And you could probably explain it better than I did um, many episodes ago. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, FIRE, FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And I think there are two there's two distinct pieces there. So financial independence is, do I have enough money to have the freedom to do what I want to do? Um, and then retire early, I think, is one of the bigger things that have changed. Financial independence has been a term for a long time in, in financial services industry. The retire early piece was just fed up with col corporate culture. A lot of people said, I got to get out of this rat race that I'm in. I'm unhappy. I'm unfulfilled with my job. How can I leave my job? well before age 65 that, you know, most people say traditional retirement. So it started, um, it started in the late 2000s. I think a lot of it happened, you know, after the great financial crisis and, and people realized, oh, wait, I could lose my job whenever. Let's focus on financial independence. Um, I th there's a couple different bloggers that really built up uh, a nice base and kind of made the FIRE movement become something mainstream. Um, I think Mr. Money Mustache is a good example of somebody it's a blog that still exists today. They don't, he doesn't post a lot on there now, but uh, just a good kind of intro into fire um, that really the early 2010s uh, started. Very interesting. And I know that when I researched it last time, um, there were different types of, of fire movement. And, and maybe you could talk about those a little bit. Yeah. So I see three main types. So you've got the traditional fire movement, which is I want to maintain my current lifestyle. Um, but the way the math works is a lot of people kind of actually focused on reducing your current lifestyle significantly. So you could save a higher percentage of your income, which then allow that when you maintained your lifestyle at that point, it was um, a lower lifestyle than, a, you know, your peers were having at the same time. And that's fine for a lot of people. Then you had on one direction, the extreme of that, which is I think known as the lean fire movement, which is, I'm going to live almost homeless and have very little possessions and, and very little of anything that I'm going to spend money on, but I don't need to work at all because my, my needs are so small. Um, the other side of that, and this is where I see my current clients really focus on is what's called the fat fire movement. <laughs> and the fat fire is I want to maintain my lifestyle or even a better lifestyle and I want to retire early and I don't want to worry about money. And that requires normally multiple streams of income, you know, whether it's real estate, whether it's um, build a nice portfolio that's, that's going to, you know, maintain and, and continue for a while. The fat fire movement really only, you can only get that number if you uh, have some nice high income to begin with. Uh, it's kind of impossible to mm. retire early, be financially independent and have a bigger life lifestyle. But uh, that's kind of the, the range is lean to traditional fire and then fat fire. That's great. And I think that for me, it's so funny. Anecdotally, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm, 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 you know, so I hear different people. I have friends of mine. And when I ask them, when do you want to retire? And, and for some reason, I have a number of friends that want to retire in their mid fifties and, and, and they believe that they will. And I'm, I'm just shocked at they, you know, my retirement target age for a long time now has always been 62. Um, okay. It's when, 
you know, social security would be available. And that, I know that could be another whole podcast, three hours. We could talk about all those things, but my target range was kind of 62 years old, kind of that traditional, you know, retirement, you know, age, um, the fat fire movement. I hadn't heard that put it in that term. So I appreciate that definition around it. I know that you and your firm focus on, um, the six stages of financial independence. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? I know it, it, and it probably, I'm guessing, ties in with, you know, the fire movement, right? Because you really are focused on the FI part of the right. RE. <laughs> right, for sure. So, so if you could tell us what you believe, you know, what are those six stages? Yep. So if we go back to kind of what the point of financial independence, financial independence is to have the freedom and flexibility to live your life, right? And so the first stage which hopefully uh, everybody who's listening has at least is on track for the first stage, but that's build up an emergency fund, right? Have enough money that if you have something crazy happen um, or you've got, you know, your fridge breaks, whatever it is, you don't have to go into debt to cover that or you lose your job. You've got at least a few months. So three to six months in emergency fund, that's stage one. Stage two is you have one year worth of expenses saved. It doesn't have to be in a savings account. This can be investments. But the idea of saying I could go a year without a paycheck, I think is very powerful psychologically for people to know that you hit that. So that's stage two is you've got a year of expenses. Then number three, which may be, this, may be before two, depending on your definition of it. Number three is you have enough money to quit your job if you you know your boss was awful and you hated going to work every day, you could quit your job and take the time to pursue the career goals that you have. So for some people, it's, I'm going to leave one company and go join another company. Another person, it could be, you know, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I want to go to law school. I'm going to quit my, my job at a bank to then go to law school. Those, so those numbers for number three depend on your specific situation. How much money do you need to have saved that you can afford to take three years off to go to law school and not go into a bunch of debt. Um, then number four is the lean fire. It's, it's lean. You could, if you lost your job or you decided to leave, you could do lean fire. You could retire early on a lean budget. And then number five is what most people view as financial independence. And that is retire at a, you could retire today, never make another dollar of income, and you maintain your current lifestyle. So I would say that majority of blogs, majority of financial planners, they stop at number five. We try to get our clients actually to number six. So number six is what I would call true financial freedom, which is really unlimited opportunities. Everyone has their own passions, their own things that they're interested in. For some people, maybe it's um, I want to move to be close to my grandkids, but it's a much higher cost state or higher cost living to move there. And I have a client, they moved from Chicago, which is not cheap, but to Southern California. And she, her concern was, can I afford my lifestyle, but then do it there? Or maybe it's, I care a lot about this charity and I want to donate a lot of money to help a cause, or I want to spend time volunteering on this cause. The number six is really the fulfillment of what the point of all this is, which is I think most people want to have a positive impact uh, in some way. And this takes you out of fi finances being any sort of problem. And so that's why we really start with that. If you have a billion dollars, what do you do? Because that actually helps 
get to what number six means to you, which is true financial freedom of unlimited possibilities. That's great. And what jumped out on me on that was quit your job if you have an awful boss. Have the money to be able to quit your job if you have an awful boss. That That is going to stick with me. There you um, go. I think everyone wants that, right? It's not the case right now. That's not the case right now. But I could see how that is a that is a good goal to have, right? To have that. And, and that's kind of middle stage, which I think is right. good. That's attainable, right? Um, I, and I think I love how the question you talked about ties to number six. One of the things I want to ask you is what other elements would help you get to that independence? And what, what kind of jumped out at me when you went through the list, you, you talked about the emergency fund and we've been talking about that when me and Jody were doing the show. We always talked about the emergency fund, the importance of it, ha, you know, going from zero to one year's worth of expense is so critical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you never know what's going to happen. And um, are there any other financial moves that that you would recommend people do? And And maybe this is a two-part question. What moves would you recommend people do to kind of get to that accomplished goal of, of, of having that independence? The other thing is, and we, the first episode of the, of the podcast was paying off the home, which I get yelled at for doing. <laughs> um, but what is your take on having a paid for home as part of that cycle or those things you do to get financially independent? That's yeah, it's um, I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, I think that the financial planner who's going to use a spreadsheet is always going to tell you don't pay off your home, but money is emotional. And for most people, it is very important to limit expenses as much as you can and have more control. And that psychologically has a positive benefit that you just can't quantify on the spreadsheet. So although the spreadsheet would almost always say borrow, especially if you can at least go back a year, borrow really low interest rates, keep that money invested in a, in something and arbitrage the difference, you're going to be better off. While that might be true, I have enough clients to, to know most don't agree with that in, print, in practice. And so um, I would say majority of my clients pay off their homes faster, even though, and, and I'm all 100% on board with it. It is a recommendation that I make because I know that's important to them to have the flexibility and the freedom. And, um, you know, your home is never 100% your home. Um, you have to pay property taxes. You have to, you know, maintain it, things like that. But if you don't have a mortgage, that's that's a huge benefit on that front. That's cool. And, and are there other, any other financial moves that and, and, and you know any any that pop into your head that I guess that's when you're guiding the customer and your your clients in terms of maybe the question I'm trying to ask is investment type. So there are there like three types of investments you encourage your clients to invest in that are going to generate the income. And and you know mm-hmm. and, and I know we're off track a little bit, but I would love no, to hear I, your opinion. Is like how do you what do you recommend typically to your so that's a great question. And you didn't know, but you triggered something that uh, I wanted to talk about because it, it really uh, bothers me when I see in the industry, a lot of people have very, it's pitched what I would call as kind of shame marketing or, or another way to say it is quick fix marketing. And uh, it's things like, well, if only you invested like a billionaire or if only you invested like the 1% or you have to do this one secret thing that I've got for you that's going to be different than everything else. And what that subconsciously is telling people is 
you're not good enough as you are. And that there's got to be something else you need to be doing that, that you've been wrong this whole time. And I get very frustrated with that. Uh, I get, you know, the ads on Facebook about things like that. And what's interesting is, so we have an investment partner that we work with that collectively between us, their clients that they have, other firms that they serve, they help advise over a half a trillion dollars of investments for clients. And we use them to help us with our research help. You know, it's just three of us in our firm. It's nice to have a whole team behind there. And 90% of what they're recommending for the billionaires down to uh, if you've got less than half a million dollars is stocks and bonds because they work. They, you have a lot of clarity on what you're buying. They won't blow up. And so the biggest concern I have when I hear a question like that is, Mm -hmm. Although it may work to buy, you know, an Airbnb rental property that I personally am interested in on my end to buy, but I know the risks. If it goes wrong, can you stomach that risk of, of things not working out the way the spreadsheet said it was going to work? So 90%, I think, make it easy, make it work, have the highest probability of success. That's going to be your stocks and your bonds. You can take that 10% of your net worth and go do rental real estate if you're interested in it. Or you can go and there's there's places you can go that are kind of halfway to a private equity, private real estate you can invest in. Just don't expect that you're going to get rich quick by doing it that way. It's going to be about, more importantly, your savings rate. So to answer your question a roundabout way, the most important thing in my mind is actually the savings rate. And the way that I like to talk about it is how long would it take for you to save one year of expenses? Because we talked about that before. So just think of it this way. If you assume you spend every dollar that you don't save, which I think is a fair assumption, if you save 10%, it's going to take you about nine years to save that other 90%, right? If you save 20% of your income, it only takes you four years because now you're not spending 90% of your income, you're only spending 80%, which means it only takes four years at 20% savings rate to build up enough that you've saved compounded that you can spend that 80% that's left. So there's this curve that, and really I think 20% is a huge number. If you can get to 20%, to maintain your lifestyle, it only takes you four years to ha- have that number. There's diminishing returns. I mean, yeah, if you could save 50% and it only take you a year, right, to save enough for one year. But if you can get down to something like 20% savings, I think that's a great first start. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I did a whole episode years ago on pay yourself first. Mm-hmm. And and I think it ties to that because someone told me a long time ago, it's, it's really not how much you make, it's how much you save. And I think that savings rate is very key. And I guess the other benefit to having a high savings rate means you've been able to maintain that discipline to be able to spend less. Mm, absolutely. Right, which I think is, is, is great as well. So um, yeah, I could appreciate that because um, it, it's definitely something that I think a, a lot of people don't focus on, they focus on how much money can I make? And they don't focus on how much money can I save, which is really, it's really the key. Um, So and and taxes, I will say taxes are overlooked. No, everyone complains about taxes, but how many people are actually taking proactive steps 
to reduce their tax bill other than when you go to file your taxes, you ask your tax preparer, what can I do? But it's already probably too late to do some things. Um, <laughs> reducing your taxes helps you. If you just don't spend that money, you just increase your savings rate. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So um, cool. I'm going to jump in, kind of jumping back to the fire movement. Uh, what Absolutely. do you think about extreme budget diets, such as the fire movement? What do you think about these in terms of yeah, so I, I think it all how people life comes down to balance, right? And and um, people are on different spectrums. I don't think that the lean fire movement works for most people. I just don't think it's sustainable in the long run. And so, although you could take a big big jump and you could save seventy percent of your income and um, and you could get, hit that lean fire number really fast. I don't think that that is fulfilling and gets you to where you want to on, on that. You know, you go back to the six stages of financial independence, you don't get to that last stage. And I have a no number of clients that have gone back to work because they were running from something when they retired, but not running to anything else. And so they, their identity was tied in their job or whatever they were doing. And the only way they found purpose was in their job, in a job. And so extreme budget diets, I think, are too focused on the numbers and reaching some goal, which is great to have goals that you're working towards. But if you don't know what it's worth or, or what the purpose is of that, then you miss, you're just unfulfilled when you hit that number. So it feels good in the moment you, you accomplish that, but then you're unfulfilled. Now, that being said, if lean fire is what gives you fulfillment, fulfillment if, if whatever you're doing with that works, then that's awesome. I just in my experience, most people that I'm coming across, that's not enough to sustain them long-term. Got it. And I think that ties to my next question, which is what are some of the lessons you learned from your clients? And I guess unfulfillment, you had a client that went back to work. Are mm -hmm. there any other lessons that you've learned from your clients, not particular clients, but just kind of the sentiment you're just dealing overall, with a lot of. Right. Yeah. So I, I clients, just like everybody else, um, my clients and everybody else are emotional when it comes to money. There's a reason my wife and I have had our own financial planner before. And it's not because I don't know what I'm doing. It's because even for me, money is emotional. And the way I would approach money is different than my wife would approach money. And so there's balance that needs to happen there. So the, the big term, I guess, that comes across to me is balance. Some clients fall on the spectrum of, I have to save for tomorrow. I'm not going to, I'm going to deny myself what I want today to save for tomorrow, all the way to the other side of life is short. Let's spend money now on the trips. Even though I'm in debt, I'm going to go take this trip, even though you told me not to do it because I don't know how long we're going to be here and I'm healthy and I want to do that. And I feel like my job for a lot of clients is to kind of help them meet in the middle and merge those two. And so it's good to have that perspective. And part of what I've learned is just the perspective of we're going to balance the future. I'm going to save, right? I know what I need to do, but we're also going to take trips when we can, because that's, that's important to me. So we just booked a trip to Europe for the summer. And it's something that we've talked about for a couple of years since I launched my business, but haven't been able to do both because of COVID and, and other things, because I don't know when we're going to be healthy in the future and if we're going to, you know, our kids aren't going to be the same ages that they are. And let's live for today some when I think we probably would live more for tomorrow um, if it wasn't for clients that I've seen 
bad things happen or they retired early. They got to experience thing and then they got sick when, if they had just waited to retire, um, they would have been sick before they retired and never got to do things. So the biggest thing I've learned overall is just life's about balance and uh, both balancing today and the future. Yeah. I think that balance is, I mean, man, this is almost like a, it's very, it's resonating with me. Some of the things you're saying today, I'm looking back, like looking at myself and thinking through these things. I think I definitely could use more balance in terms of, um, you know, those, those family trips, like you said, like my son is 18, he's in college. Um, we went on one big family trip, right? The whole time. Right. And I look back and I'm saying, wow, this is, I didn't, you know, we, we should have done more. And I, 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 but the, you know, conversely, you know, he's in, you know, he's in college and thankful and grateful we're able to help him with college significantly. Right. right. Which, so uh, trying to figure out this balance, but you know, and, and I guess, you know, uh, hindsight is, was it hindsight is 2020. I forget right. what the time Hindsight's is. Hindsight's 2020. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and if I had to do it again, I would say I would do more, but, my personality and everything kind of lends itself to being more risk adverse and conservative and making sure that there's enough um, of, 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 of enough savings to kind of weather storms. Right. I think right. that's what comes to mind. And that's where I, I think I get some of my peace of mind from. Um, Absolutely. Gonna... What, I, what I will also say just on that, because uh, I would say more of my clients are in your camp on, on how they think about money and the, biggest thing I have is even when they're retired, you may still have that. And so you're a long way off. But when you get to that point, it's going to be important that you actually start spending the money, right? When you hit the numbers, <laughs> because I have so many clients that say, oh, I'm not ready. You know, what if I need that 20 years from now? Well, if you've done our job and you've saved enough, which most have, if we're working with you for a long time, you got to enjoy it. Once you hit the, Once you hit that goal, you've got to use it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Um, and I'll tell the audience, do as I do as, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, but it is great advice, Ben. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask another question that unrelated, um, how has the financial services industry changed how it serves clients and makes money? I, I think that you touched upon it before in terms of the way the industry's changed from kind of the old guard to the new guard, but like, how, how do you see, how has how has it changed um, mm -hmm. as of late? So uh, I think you have to go back actually to probably the '70s to start. So we're going to go back uh, a little bit of ways, and it's just kind of the evolution. And so um, I'm not going to get the dates exactly right, but you basically had an industry that when you talk about financial advisor, financial services, it was all about you had to call your stockbroker to buy a specific stock, and that and you got you paid a commission. Um, and so whether you see, you know, if you've seen the Wolf of Wall Street and they call, uh, you know, they call in and they're trying to pitch penny stocks and stuff, that's your stockbroker. And there, that was the way it was up until the 90s. And then the 90s came along and it was about commission based mutual funds, 80s and 90s, commission based mutual funds. So you would buy a mutual fund. So it's not just I'm going to sell you this stock, but I'm going to sell you this basket of stocks and you're going to be better because of it. And oh, me stockbroker is now a commission mutual fund salesman. So I'm going to get paid a front load of 5%. So, you know, I'm going to take 5% off the top and invest 95% of it for you. Then it shifted in the late nineties, early two thousands to 
I'll call it asset allocation approach. And the asset allocation is saying, well, not just pick you the right mutual fund, but I'm going to have the right stocks versus bonds. Um, and do you have some international and do you have some emerging markets? Things like that. Have the right basket. And that is where most people you're going to run into today have stopped. And so when I say the old guard that's more than 20 years ago, that's really who I'm talking about. That their job in financial services was strictly about investments all the way up to this most recent iteration. And now we're at the point where technology has come down, uh, has, come, has pushed prices down, and you can go to Schwab or, or Fidelity and buy stocks for $0. And you can buy no-load mutual funds. And you can go to a robo-advisor fairly inexpensively to get a nice asset allocation when you answer some risk tolerance questions. So what's shifting now, and it's happening slow on the big end, but this kind of the younger firms are embracing it from day one, is all of the areas that, that money touches that's not just investments. So I mentioned... For what we do, we're looking at property and casualty, auto and homeowners insurance. We're looking at uh, life, disability, long-term care insurance. We're looking at uh, estate planning and tax planning and both now and in the future and retirement projections and all those pieces that impact your life more so than just what's my investments look like. And so as this, as it's changed, the commissions are gone but people are still charging 1% on assets that they're managing because that's the only way they know how to give advice. In the next five or 10 years, there's more and more companies, more and more advisors that are focused on true financial planning and getting to the heart of, of what all this is for. Yeah, I think that makes sense, right? Is, is, is having that 360 degree view of a, of a client's financial picture, right? And not just, okay, this is, and it seems like the investment part, which is a, which is a big part, but when you look at the other components, it becomes smaller, right? Cause you're focusing on making sure that their estate is planned. Well, you're making sure that their tax bill is, is lower. You're making sure their investments are doing well. Like there, there's all these different aspects to it. So I like that, that vision that your firm has, as well as I like your vision on how the, where the industry's going, right? Because mm -hmm. like you said, you could log in and buy stuff pretty cheap, right? What's right. the differentiator? And the differentiator is going to be the ability to really understand your client, really look at it from an intimate perspective and be able to give that, um, that prescriptive guidance on how they should proceed, not just in investing, but all aspects of kind of their financial right. well-being. So I... I think that's a great goal, and it sounds like that's where your firm is really focused on. Absolutely, and and there's a whole um, we're part of a network called the XY Planning Network, and it's it's built for that. It's it's you can go to xyplanning.com and find an advisor. You say what you, who you are, and there's people that have different uh, a, a niche in your specific thing, and you can go find somebody there. And those are all firms that are looking for not just investments. And that's part of why, that's why we're part of the group. Um, because I think it's a great group that gives, it, it approaches financial planning as financial planning, not just investment advice. Um, I do, I have a couple clients that want to hire me just for investment advice. I mean, I think we're really good at that piece. And I try to dissuade them from that, even if the fees are even less possibly because of the way we, the fee schedule might work um, to go to full financial planning because I don't like working with people on just investments 
because when I see a problem, I want to help fix it, right? And so the, how mm -hmm. can I manage your investments if I don't know the goal you're investing for? What is our plan? What are you going to use this money for? That changes how it should be invested. And so they're all intermingled. And I think if you're just investments only, you're missing most of the picture. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that I want to be frugal with your time. And, and I know we've spent a lot of time. And thank you for the time you've given me today. I have just a few more questions that I think I'm going great. to... In my mind, they're more fun questions or philosophical questions um, and not as uh, financially related into the, the investment side. But how, do, how does psychology impact financial decisions? So we and psychology is how people make financial decisions. Um, there is very few decisions that you make around money that are 100 percent rational. And I stand by that. You you are not 100% rational. <laughs> when you go to the store and you react to the $99 versus $100, that's marketing. That's all playing on your psychology. Um, when you see buy one, get one free, that's all psychology. Marketers know how to do that. But it also comes down to, do you? how do you feel about budgeting? I think a lot of people, they feel embarrassed on how much they spend on one category. I don't know what it is. A lot of people say restaurants to me. They're embarrassed how much they spend on restaurants. Well, if you enjoyed spending that much on restaurants, that's great. Go do that. But the psychology stops them from taking a look and being rational because you're either embarrassed, you feel shame, you feel like you should be doing something better, or you're so worried about the future, possibly rationally, possibly irrationally, that you don't live for today. So there's a balance of everything, but I think psychology is a part of every financial decision. Got it. Got it. No, that makes sense. Um, because when, when I, when I think about it, I always go back to the risk tolerance, right? Risk adverse versus not, you know, versus, uh, you know, super risk savvy, you know, like the, and that's, that kind of ties in. So when I, when we were, when you were talking about that finance, the psychology impact, and you mentioned it before about paying off the mortgage, right? right? That's a psychological impact, right? That would impact the decision, even though the math, pure math will tell you no, psychologically, you still want to do it, right? And I think right. that's interesting. Um, and then the other question I have is, and this is a fun one, um, and I saw it on kind of your one of your questions that, you know, in terms of the question list, and how does one define what is enough? And that is a great question. It's such a simple question, and we touched upon it a little bit today in terms of the fire movement and stuff like that, but how does one define that? I, I I think I would, I think I continued ever since I saw that question, I'm struggling with it, but what's your right. <laughs> take on it? So I, I actually don't think you, most people can define what is enough themselves. I think you need a third party, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a financial planner asking the questions, you need somebody to help you kind of walk through that because you need a level of self-reflection and understanding of like what's important to you that I think we're all stuck. You know, we have our blinders on. There's only so much we see that I think is really helpful to talk through. So whether that's a group of friends you really care about and you can get intimate with or your spouse or, or somebody else, it starts with what's most important to you. So that's part of why we, again, going back to the questions, why we ask if you get a billion dollars, what do you do? Because that takes away as many things as we can um, that could be stressors or, or change that equation, right? And so enough is both a financial number, but it's also a lifestyle. It's a fulfillment. It's, you know, depending 
depending on, you know, it could be a religious answer. It could be just a philosophical answer. Everyone's going to answer it differently. And that's actually what makes my job really fun because I help people find that or get closer to it. And uh, I kind of get to live through the other people's lives too on what gives them fulfillment. And so that's fun. But um, I think that's a really difficult one to answer first, but I would just start with, okay, if you woke up and you had a billion dollars in your bank account tomorrow, hopefully that's enough. <laughs> but what do you do? What is <laughs> like focus on how you feel and compare that to how you feel today, because that can help kind of hone in on here's psychologically what's holding me back from something. Very cool. Very good. No, thank you for that. I, I, I love all that advice that's baked into there. And the last question I want to ask you, I, I pretty much ask all my guests, especially who are parents, right? So how do you balance all of this? I looked at your LinkedIn, um, you're doing podcasts, you're appearing on other shows, you have this, this successful business, you have your, your family. How do you, how do you fit it all in? And how, is there any bits of advice that you could give other parents out there on how you, how you manage to, to get all this stuff done? <laughs> That's, it's a good question. And, um, <laughs> you, you know, until you asked that, I didn't, I don't think I, you know, have it all figured out, right? So not that I do, but um, I think that's a good question and good, good reflection. So I think there's kind of two things that come to mind. So number one is just, just my support team. So the team is both who I have internally, but also in my business that helps, but also my wife and my, my family and my in-laws. And, and we just have a lot of support um, that helps through all those different things. Um, so that's, you know, very important and, and we're, we know we're blessed and lucky to have all that. And uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm a very curious person and I am a big believer in the 80-20 rule. And I like to get, do the 20% work to get 80% proficient in something, to know enough of what I know, what I don't know, and how to kind of determine who those experts actually are. Because if you don't know anything, you don't know the questions to ask. But if you know the 80%, you can really figure out who the expert is. And so I like to do that in all areas of my life and then delegate to those experts. So whether that's in the business of, of outsourcing to a firm that's really good at something, hiring people that work for me that are awesome at the things I'm really bad at, um, or it's just paying for things that I'm willing to pay for in my own life because I know I'm not going to be the best at it. I'm going to delegate it to somebody else. It's worth the cost to pay somebody else to have that balance. That's how we balance is just the things we want to do. We're good at. We like to do. We're going to do the things that we're not the best at and we hate doing. We're going to delegate to somebody else. And a lot of time that's pain, pain for something. Um, but uh, I think that's really, it's important to know what you don't know. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Well, that's, that's all great advice. And I usually go into a summary recap and some of the things I had jotted down was love your definition of, of, of fire. Those, those, those different areas. Um, the $1 billion question. I, I think that's interesting and that, that we brought it up a couple of times. And I think that's very, that's something people should focus on and think about. Um, if, you know, and when they, when they're listening back on this podcast, that's one of the things I think they should take away is think about that for two minutes or five minutes, or it might take a lifetime. I don't know, <laughs> but think about it a bit. The fat tire movement, a uh, fat fire movement, fat tire, fat fire movement, which sounded very interesting. And your six stages 
of independence, right? Uh, and we also talked about the savings rate, how important that is versus, you know, income and then how the industry's changed, right? Uh, taking us through that history of, you know, pitching pure stocks to mutual funds to, and, and where we are today with kind of offering these full service for these firms are offering, including yourself, offering the full services uh, to make sure the clients are covered. Um, so, so thank you for that, Ben. Um, and I want to, you know, give you the last word in terms of today's takeaways, any um, additional things you want to leave the audience and, and where can people find you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this has been great. I appreciate you having me on and um, probably the easiest way is just go to our website, illuminate wm.com um, and there's a lot of things on there there's blogs there's things you can download for you know just tips on education planning for your kids things like that there's a lot of things a lot of good resources there um, but I, I think biggest takeaway to me is just you know money's money's emotional and and uh, all these things we talked about they they all really have emotions built into it and so um, I, I think not just focus on the spreadsheet but let's take a step back and really know yourself a little bit better. I think it's going to be valuable for everybody. Great advice. Great advice. Thanks, Ben. And, and well, Ben, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Hopefully we can have you back on the show. Yeah. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Yep. Uh, thanks everyone for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you, managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you.